not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure some of you know that the Bachelorette TV show started recently. Did you know that? I'm like, do I admit that in, in church? The ba- this year, I guess there was a twist. There are actually two Bachelorettes. Isn't this exciting? I can tell you're on the edge of your seats. Two Bachelorettes, and one of the first things that happens is the guys get to vote on to which Bachelorette they like to have the privilege for the next however many weeks of trying to win her affection. Like I said, I'm not going to ask you if you'll watch it. I don't, for the record. You're not convinced, are you? I do not, I promise. Not my cup of tea. But what gets me with it is you hear about it, and you see the little clips from time to time of, let's say, after... I guess there's something about roses. There's a ceremony where they pass out roses. If you don't get a rose, you have to go home. Is that right? Am I pretending I don't know enough about it well enough? Okay, just checking. So inevitably, one person doesn't get a rose, and they're picked up in the limo, and they go out, and and they're 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 all brokenhearted. They're weeping. It's so horrible. I was falling in love with him. I'm like really, you were on national TV with uh, fake dates, because, you know, really all of your dates are with TV cameras and producers around, right? And at the same time, he or she is kissing 14 other people every chance they get, and you're brokenhearted. And, and my, I guess the line that gets me the most is, is there something wrong with me? And I was like, yes! There is! There's something bad wrong with you! If you thought, I know how I can get a a date and fall in love and find my forever love. I'll go on a TV show. Perfect. It'll be awesome. Really? You don't watch it? We'll just leave that alone then. It is fascinating to me that... Uh-oh, I missed something now. Fascinating that dynamic that happened. And, and you know, when I think about that and I see or hear about those people in the limo, just is there something wrong? Again, I want to say yes. And here's the thing we all need to understand. And this is sort of the taking off point. There's something wrong with all of us. In fact, look at the person sitting beside you. There is something wrong with you. Just go ahead and tell them. Now, if you want to say there's something bad wrong with you, I'm going to let you pick that up. There is something wrong with all of us. With that, in fact, let me let me add a, a little, I guess, qualifier. Without Christ, there is something wrong with you. In fact, we want to start today in the book of Ephesians, chapter two, and and what we're going to find when we read these first few verses together is the list of things that Paul says describes us. These are not happy things. These are not good things. These are not things that we would brag about. And, Ephesians chapter 2, verse verse 1, he says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, verse 3 is our jumping ahead, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Just in those few verses, what does it say? You are a sinner. You have sinned or, or have transgressed or have trespassed. You have broken God's law, his perfect standard 
of justice and righteousness and holiness, everybody has broken. And we've done the exercise before uh, that, that comes out of the way of the master and, and Ray Comfort where, where I say to you something like this. How many of you have ever told a lie? Raise your hand up high. Very good. If your hand isn't up, you're a liar right now. Amen. What do you call somebody who tells a lie? A liar, yes. Have anybody taken anything that wasn't yours? Anyone at all ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Yes, I remember as a kid, I took something that wasn't mine. It was in Miller's Supermarket. It was a pack of gum, and I was with my grandmother, and I took that pack of gum because I thought as a three-year-old I deserved it, and I walked out, and Granny found it, and she walked me right back in and said, you're going to apologize to Mr. Miller. Yes, I've taken something that's not mine. What do you call somebody take something that's not theirs? You're a thief. Not looking good for you so far. Jesus says if you've ever looked at a woman, guys, or, or gals, at a man, lustfully you have committed adultery in your heart. Who wants to raise their hand and say, I have done that? Go ahead, raise them up high. Okay, good, just checking. They're in church, it's okay. What do you call somebody who commits adultery? They are a... You are all, by your own admission, lying, thieving, adulterers. Thank God you're in church. Right? We are all sinners. There's, and that's just three of the things listed. Just three. We've, we understand we are sinners. And it says, because of that, we are spiritually dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our sins separate us from God. In, in the Garden of Eden... God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And they ate, and while they didn't fall over dead immediately, we know that that began a process of separating them from God. We call it spiritually dead. And anyone apart from Christ is dead in their trespasses and sins. Now, I know most of us probably have some amazing testimonies. I've heard many people that give incredible stories of what happened in their life the kind of lives they led before they were a Christian. And they did all sorts of things. But ultimately, it doesn't matter, quote, how bad you were before you became a Christian. The story of anyone without Christ is they are dead. And last time I checked, there aren't degrees of dead. You're either dead or you're alive. I guess we could say in the immortal words of, yes, Miracle Max, you're mostly dead. No such thing. No Princess Bride. I, I keep thinking eventually. Just checking. You're either dead. When you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you are dead. And notice it says not only are we sinful and spiritually dead, but in verse 3 it says we are by nature objects of God's wrath. God has the right to pour out his wrath on us. A holy, righteous, just God cannot in any way conscience sin. And so sin has no place in the presence of God. It is against his very nature. And so we are objects by our sinful nature of the very wrath of God. And then the, the next verse has two of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Whenever you see these two words put together, they are wonderful things. After it says that we are sinners and we are dead and we are objects of wrath, it says this, but God. But God. That's true. Don't you love a big but? I mean, that didn't come out right.
there is no recovery from that. <laughs> I, there, there's no, yes. Well, let's pray and go home because everybody's going to say, come to my church, my preacher talks about big butts. Excellent. And this is a huge one. But God, he interrupts the flow of this picture. He jumps in to this horrible reality that we are sinful and dead and subjects to the wrath of God and instead changes the narrative. But God, who is rich in mercy and out of his great love for us, has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul says, the story of your life is that without Christ, there is something horribly wrong with you. You are sinful. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Your objects are subject to God's wrath. But God has done something unmistakable in your life. He has entered into the picture and by his love and grace and mercy has made you alive when you place your faith in him. And so because of what God has done, the narrative flips. The story changes. And and I want to jump ahead a few verses now to verses 8, 9, and 10. 8 and 9 are good old Baptist verses. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We quote these all the time, but we often leave out verse 10. And we stop just short of verse 10. Verse 8 um, I learned it differently. I'm reading it from the New Living Translation, for the record. Uh, You may be more familiar with other wording for it, but the New Living Translation uses these words. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is the gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are, and here's what I want to talk about the rest of our time together, for we are... God's masterpiece. That's the the, the New Living Translation. Uh, Workmanship is the word that most translations use. We are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. We are God's masterpiece. See, one of the things that that we as, as, as Christians look at in that passage is those first two verses, eight and nine, it tells us there is nothing we can do to be good enough. Now, we all try to be good. We're all told from a young age to be good little boys and girls. We're we're trained, our parents spend a lot of time and effort and energy correcting us when we go wrong and trying to keep us on the path of good. But no matter how good you have been, it's not good enough to somehow earn God's favor. In fact, you cannot earn God's favor because the story of your life without Christ is that you are sinful, dead, and subject to his wrath. But God inserted himself through Christ and did something you couldn't do for yourself when he sent Jesus. And it's by grace we have been saved through faith. This is the translation maybe most of you memorized. Not of works, not of yourself, lest anyone can boast about it. We can't brag that somehow I've done enough good to make God happy. It's not like this cosmic scale in the sky is up there and all your good works are placed on this side and all the bad things you do are placed on this side. And as long as the good is heavier than the bad, 
you make it. No, that's not the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is God's standard is perfection, holiness, and we all fall short of that. But because of what Jesus has done, verse 10, we are God's masterpiece. We are God's workmanship. That The, the Greek word for workmanship or masterpiece is, is the, the Greek word poema, which you can maybe hear the English word poem in. In fact, that's where we get our English word poem is from that Greek word poema. And we are God's poema. We are a poetic expression of God's glory when he does a new work in us in Christ Jesus. We are God's carefully crafted product. Not anything I did, not my ability, not my skill, not my goodness, but only what God has created in me, the new work that he has done in my life through his son Jesus, do I become this reality. I become God's masterpiece. Not saved by my good works, but what does this say? We are God's masterpiece. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? For good works. And then there's this phrase, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them or that we should do. God already has a plan for what he wants you to do. Last week we said, as we started this series, Who Am I? We said, if you know who you are, you know what to do. When you understand who you are, it's easier to know what to do. And what this tells us is because God has crafted in us this new work and created us as his poema, his masterpiece, his perfect workmanship, that helps us understand how we're supposed to live out our lives. And what we do in living out our lives is simply trying to walk in the things that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Because if we are God's masterpiece, if we are God's workmanship, here's what I want you to know. You were created to fulfill the master's purpose. When God did this new work in you in Christ Jesus, he created you to fulfill his purpose. I want to look at Psalm 139. It's a beautiful passage in the Old Testament, David writes, and it tells us a little bit about ourselves. And in Psalm 139, let me turn over there real quick, um, David talks about what it meant to be created uniquely. And he says in verse six, or excuse me, verse 13, it says of God, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. What a beautiful picture of God's work from the earliest days of, of from conception on God working and knitting together a, a child in the mother's womb. He says this, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths. Your eyes saw my unformed body. And then listen to this. What does he say? He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Certainly this passage is, is an incredible picture of the sovereignty and the, the omniscience of our God, that he knows more than we can even imagine knowing. His, his wealth and depth of knowledge of who we are and of life, the universe, and everything is unfathomable. But it says here, out of that great knowledge, he has all the days of my life ordained and written in his book before even I took my first breath, before one of them came to be. What an incredible thought. If, if you've ever held maybe that newborn baby as a parent, and 
you, you marvel and wonder at the potential of this life. You wonder what's going to happen in five years, ten years, twenty, thirty years. And then in the blink of an eye, you look back over twenty, thirty years and wonder where it all went. How did, how did it go from holding that baby in the hospital to seeing them off to college or into their first job or walking them down the aisle or holding your grandbaby now all those years later? All of that time. And to think, no matter how much you might hope for the best for your child, God's hopes and desires are so much greater than that for all of us. And it says in this passage in Psalm 139, all of our days are ordained for us. We, we put that together with what Paul says in Ephesians. He says we are God's workmanship. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works which were prepared in advance for us to, to do. When we know who we are as God's masterpiece and we, we face the different decisions or challenges in our life, part of knowing who we are is helping us to walk in the reality where would God desire me to go? Where does God already know I'm supposed to go in this situation? If God, as the master, created me, he created me with a purpose. He created me, and and, and you know what I love, too, about this Psalm 139 passage? All of your days are ordained. You are born in this period of time. You live these years of your life, these, these 70 or so years, 80 years that we hope to live on this earth, we lived them at the exact moment in history that God knew was best for our unique abilities, our personality, our skills, our, our mentality. All of who you are, God designed and placed in this place at this time in history, particularly and purposefully, so that you could live out His purpose for you. Isn't that a remarkable thought? That God would know you enough and say, of all the ages of history, of all the thousands and tens and thousands of years, that he placed you in this age at this time because you are best able to serve him right now. You are best able to live for him right now. That should be a humbling thought. That should be an inspiring thought that God chose you for these days. As he said to Esther, or I guess Haman, or no, who was, Haman's the bad guy in that one, right? Mordecai says to Esther, who knows that you weren't made for such a time as this? And Psalm 139 says, you were made for such a time as this. You're walking this earth. You're living, if you are in Key Largo, or if it's not Key Largo, wherever you are, on purpose, because God knew all that you were and all that you would be before you took your first breath, and he put you here, and he's got lined out for you as his masterpiece, as the poetic expression of his glory, a life to live on purpose and for his purposes. And you know what happens if you don't know the purpose of something? You usually misuse it. Have you noticed that? If you don't know how to use something, you don't know what, it, what the true purpose of something is, it's often the reality that we misuse it. Josh, I'm really hoping the picture's up there, and I'm kind of worried it's not. Oh. Man, it was a great picture. I wish I could recreate it. It's, it's just not the same. Oh, well. 
I don't know what happened with that. I had a picture of, of two guys working on a construction site. One of them has a circular saw, and he's sawing a board, and he couldn't find a workbench. So the other guy's on all fours, and the board is on his back, and he's got the circular saw. Excellent, huh? That is not the uh, instructionally appointed usage for a human body. If you don't know the purpose of something, you'll use it for the wrong thing. Okay, here's my second illustration. I debated using this, but since the picture's not here, I'm just going to go for it anyway. I had a cousin who was, uh, let's just say, mean to his sister. To show how mean, he he played sports, as a lot of young boys do. He played, uh, I believe, baseball was one of them. And in baseball, uh, young men have a certain piece of equipment, athletic cup that they're supposed to wear that protects them from bumps and bruises. We'll just leave it at that. Well, he thought it would be funny to tell his sister that that was actually an oxygen mask. If there are any young men here, don't try this at home. He said, no, really it is. Go ahead. And I was in the house when he told her, and she put it over her mouth and breathed deeply. If you don't know the purpose of something, you will misuse something, whether it's a human body as that or other things. If you don't know, any of you like those, uh, those there's some great shows that show this too. Uh, how about um, Antiques Roadshow? Anybody ever watch that? Okay. Uh, one, of, one of the ones that gets me, we, we don't watch it so much anymore, Pawn Stars. You remember Pawn Stars? One of the things that, that we would talk about when we'd watch it, People would go into this pawn shop, and it's in Vegas of all places. And you know when you're in Vegas, whatever. And people would take family heirlooms into Vegas. Like, this is the uniform my grandfather wore in World War I. How much is it worth? And we would think, wow, your grandfather fought in World War I and whatever it was. And that was the uniform he wore. And right now... You really want to play back blackjack so bad that you're going to take that to a guy who's going to give you pennies on the dollar for it and sell it. Because if you don't understand the purpose and the value of something, you will misuse it. Let's go back to The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. That's part of the, the sadness of those shows is these people created in the image of God, unique human beings who... The the psalmist says God knew them before they were born, knit them together in their mother's womb. They have value as the creation of God. And who, with Christ in their life, could use them and create them as a masterpiece for his glory. Don't understand that value. And that culture, that, that idea and that mentality in our culture goes everywhere. You don't have to be on national television to not understand the value of who you are as a young woman or a young man made in God's image. It should preserve that integrity and that purity in a way that honors God as the one who made you and knew you and created you for certain things. All of those things, if we don't understand the truth of that, it's easy not to live in light of God's purpose and God's plan. Us. It's easy to make choices that betray the value. And, and if you don't know the purpose of something, how do you find out the purpose of something? I would suggest the best place to go is to the one who made it, don't you think? I know we got some guys here that like to build things. Anybody just throw out the instructions? 
I like instructions personally. I, I'm one of those that likes to read instructions. I don't know why. Probably because maybe I hope it helps me get from point A to point B. But but instructions are helpful. Uh, we have a few Lego sets in my house. And actually I have one in my, my office that's sitting up on top. It's a, it's a Star Wars Lego set that's got a couple of thousand pieces in it. How foolish would it have been for me to go, 2,000 pieces, that's nothing. I got a picture, I'll figure it out. And just start putting them together. How, how likely is it that I would go from 2,000 Lego pieces to a starship from Star Wars? Very unlikely, right? How am I going to get there? I'm going to ask the one who put it together. I'm going to look at the instructions. I'm going to ask the, the builder and maker and designer of that Lego set how to go from point A to point B. And the same thing, if God truly is the one who knew us before we were born, who knit us together in our mother's womb, who has all of our days laid out before we take our first breath, wouldn't it be wise to ask Him, to seek Him, to find out from Him what is the purpose that you have made me for? I want to live out the reality that I am God's workmanship, His unique workmanship, His unique created masterpiece created for the incredible purpose and design of God, the poetic expression of the glory of God. Wherever I may go, that is part of my purpose. So not only are we created for a purpose, we need to understand that since he created us, we have everything we need to do everything God wants us to accomplish. Have you ever looked at somebody and said, oh, I wish I was like that? I wish I could, I don't know, pick something. I wish I could sing like that person. Or I wish I could build things like that person. I wish I could fill in the blank. We kind of get envious of people that we look at and think, oh, they can do this or that. Or you know, Scripture says we shouldn't feel that way. First Peter tells us specifically, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. It tells us that His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Do you know what you have been given to live out God's purposes for your life? What does that say? Everything you need. You have everything you need to live God's purpose for your life. Because God makes sure when He calls us, when He creates us, when He chose this moment in history to place us and to live our lives, He knew that He had certain tasks, certain purposes that we could accomplish, and He makes sure we have exactly what we need to be and to do exactly who we need to be and do. So we don't need to be envious. Okay, so you can't sing like, who's... Uh, Let's say, pick somebody that's a good singer. Josh Groban, that's what I heard. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Frank Sinatra. Luciano Pavarotti. Is that another guy? Uh, Andrea Bocelli. Why am I going all Italian all of a sudden? I don't know. Apparently, who else? You got any great female singers? Celine Dion, is that what I heard? My heart will go on. I'm king of the world. That's all I can think of when I hear these great, even myself, I wish I could do that. I wish I could sing. And, and, and maybe we have good
good ideas. If I could sing like Celine Dion, I wouldn't be in Vegas at a casino. I would be in front of God's people. I would sing for God's glory. And people would flock to hear me. Doesn't that sound good? Or or here's my favorite. I wish I could win the lottery because I could tithe. God, if you just let me be rich, whether it's win the lottery or have the great invention that's going to make me God, if I could just be like that mogul, like that entrepreneur, oh, God, I would make sure you got your at least 10. Maybe, God, I'd give you 11%. You can trust me, God. Think, oh, and, and all that, that we're seeing in this goes against that. If God wanted you to be that next great singer, that next great entrepreneur, that next great orator, that next great philosopher or teacher, he would have made you that. See, here, I live in church world. I may have mentioned this before. And those of us in church world look around at other places. And you know there are church worlds that are bigger than this church world? In fact, there are church worlds where this church world could fit in the choir loft. In fact, there are probably people more people in some of those choirs and bands and orchestras than there are in this room right now. We look at it and say, oh, man, wouldn't it be awesome? Let's see, what, what's, a, well, what's a huge church? Let's go with Saddleback. I think that's what we studied a while back. Saddleback out in, in California. Tens of thousands of people, multiple campuses. Oh, could you imagine? And, and it's easy to get caught up in that and think, man, that would be, that, that would be it. Oh, and here's the thing. God didn't make me for that. That's not me. I could never survive in that. And you know what else? If you brought Rick Warren here, he probably wouldn't survive here. He'd probably do okay. Don't get me wrong. He'd manage. He'd eke out a living. But this isn't him. There's a reason Rick Warren is in California and has tens of thousands of people and multiple churches because God put him together in a way and put him in a place to do that. There's a reason I'm in Key Largo. It's because God put me together to manage this kind of a place and to deal with with the kinds of people that are here and to minister in the ways that we do. I mean, I can't tell you what a privilege it is. This is kind of a nostalgic weekend. We moved here 16 years ago, Memorial Day weekend, which on the one hand was like, what have we gotten ourselves into? I went into Publix, and I was like, apparently it's clothing optional in the Keys. And my second thought was, that's not sanitary. But on the other hand, I think back to 16 years of life and ministry here, and some of you have been here that full time, and we've gone through stuff together. And and we've ministered to you, and you've ministered to us. And I wouldn't trade that for 10,000 people on a Sunday morning. I wouldn't trade what God has built in my life because of my relationships with you for any of that. Because God uniquely crafted me and placed me here for that purpose. And the same is for you. God uniquely crafted you and placed you where you are. He's given you everything you need to accomplish exactly his purposes where he has placed you in this particular time in the grand scheme of things. So we think, oh, God has so much to manage. And even kind of, I guess, tongue-in-cheek or joking, you hear people say, well, God, I'm not, you know, I don't want to bother you with this request because I know you've got so much more important things on your mind. Not true. A, nothing you could ask of God is a bother to the Lord of heaven and earth. 
the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God who's the God of all flesh. There's nothing too hard for him, Scripture says. And on the other hand, he knows you intimately, even as the psalmist said. He has a purpose for you, as we've read, and he wants to make sure you are equipped to fulfill that purpose in your life in this day and time. So, by all means, seek him and ask him, God, how can I fulfill your purpose? You've placed me here. You've given me this opportunity. You've given me this challenge. God, give me the ability. You said you're going to give me everything I need for life and godliness. I need something now, God. I'm trusting you. And see if he doesn't use you as that poetic expression of his glory, where he's placed you for his purposes. Because here's the reality. Has good stuff happened to anybody here? Anybody had like a really great thing happen in your life? Anybody had some really lousy things happen in your life? Do you believe God can use both? Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for anybody who asks for his good, right? Not exactly. Romans 8.28 tells us, And God works all things together for the good of who? Those who love him and are called according to what? His purpose. So, In my life, I've had some great experience. I've had stuff I've said, God, please let this happen, and it's happened. I've had some stuff that I've prayed, God, I can't believe this happened. I've had some things that that, that I'm thankful for and things that I regret, and God has used it all. I guess the best example, well, there's a lot of good examples. One example that comes to mind, I should say, is Joseph in the Old Testament. You know, Joseph understood God had a unique purpose for him. But he also didn't seem to be the most humble young man. Because he told his parents and his brothers, and he was the youngest, hey, listen, one day you guys are going to bow to me. He told them the dream that he had. And basically that's the message of the dream. And they're like, Joseph, really? You're telling us this at dinner? That's That's not nice. That's not good. They're kind of put off by it. To the point that as we read the account of his life in Genesis, he's out checking on his brothers one day, and he goes to to meet them, and what's he wearing? That Technicolor dream coat, in the words of the Broadway musical. He's wearing that coat of many colors, that symbol of his father's uh, unique affection for him, and his brothers see him, and what do they plot to do? To kill him! Now, that's not how it turns out, but that's what it started with. Let's kill him. Let's kill him to death. But there's a discussion They decide not to. They're persuaded not to. Instead, they throw him in a pit. They sell him to some some caravan that's passing by. They take his coat of many colors and stain it with animal blood and tell Dad he's dead. Must have been attacked by animals. But Joseph goes on, and he's in Egypt. And and he distinguishes himself there in Egypt. He he rises through the ranks. Uh, he, He gets, in effect... The, the great responsibility of one household, Potiphar's house. And then, as just as things seem to be going, and he's thinking, maybe these dreams are going to come through, Potiphar's wife develops a crush, makes a pass, Joseph resists, she lies about it and says, oh, you won't believe what he did, he came on to me. And where does Joseph go from in charge of Potiphar's house to jail? And at the time, is Joseph thinking, thank you, God, this is where I wanted to be. God, your purposes are being fulfilled in me. 
No. But even there, he distinguishes himself, and he rises again. He's, he's given responsibility. And into the jail come a couple of people, the baker and the cupbearer of the, the Pharaoh. They have dreams. Joseph interprets the dreams. Joseph's got a thing with dreams. Uh, eventually, word gets to Pharaoh, who has a dream that there's a guy in prison that can interpret his dream. Joseph brought before Pharaoh, interprets his dream that there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. He's installed as the one who will manage those seven years and set aside the resources in Egypt so that when the famine comes, they're ready. The famine comes. Egypt's ready. Israel's not. Brothers go to Egypt to get some things, knock on the door, and guess who recognizes them? If you're familiar with the story, right? There's Joseph. They don't know him. He knows them. He tests them a little bit. All in all, there's a big, happy, cry family reunion. And what does Joseph tell them? What you intended for evil, God meant for good. Joseph understood that God works everything together according to his purposes for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God works no matter what. And that's the story of your life. That's the story God can write with your life. Because without Christ, what do we say we are? There's something wrong with us. We need to go back down. We're messed up. We're broke. We're sinners, we're dead in our sins, and we're objects of God's wrath. And then with Christ, God does unique work in us, crafts us as a poem that displays his glory for all to see. And we are called to live out his purposes. You know, another, another translation for that word poema, it's sometimes used in secular uh, literature to mean tapestry. You know what a tapestry is, right? Just a huge basically woven piece that's, that's this great work of art. But have you ever looked at the backside of a tapestry? You, know, you take that, that huge, expensive tapestry, maybe in places like the Biltmore or other, other houses of that nature. And, and where, where, where do we go? Newport, Rhode Island, that's where it was. And they'd have these, these paintings and tapestries on the walls. And they are gorgeous. And they tell you how old they are and they tell you what they're worth. If you were to just turn that around on the wall not the same picture, is it? What's on the back of that? Well, that's where all the knots are. You know, all those different cords that are woven together on the back have to be knotted. Sometimes it's frayed on the back. The colors don't blend the same way. It's only when you turn it around and see it from the perspective that it's meant to be seen at that you see the beauty of that piece of art. You know, that's our lives sometimes. And sometimes we just get to see the old knotty backside. Exactly. I know. You're going back to the big butt, aren't you? <laughs> I get it. That's, that's the legacy of this message, I can tell you. <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying. Sometimes when we see what's happening, all we see are the knots and the frays and the, the threads that don't quite match up. But the, from the perspective of heaven, and even maybe from the perspective of those around us who see our lives, they see the intricacy with which God has put all of that together. The beauty, the poetic expression of God's unique work in our lives. Paul says, by grace you've been saved. It's not anything you've done. It's the gift of God, not of works. So you can't boast about it. For you are God's workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works which which were prepared in advance for you. You were created uniquely by God through Christ's work in your life to fulfill His purpose. That's who you are. In Christ, restored, redeemed, useful, a masterpiece. Now it's our job to go out and to live out that reality this week. No matter what happens, the good and the bad, to be that person in that place God has uniquely placed you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your unique work in our lives through your Son, Jesus. I thank you that, as the psalmist says, you knew us and crafted us and knit us together in our mother's womb, that you had the days of our life numbered before we took our first breath. Lord, that we can be your unique masterpiece through the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And Lord, I pray on the one hand for those here who have never experienced the salvation and redemption that you offer through Jesus. Because Lord, our our lives without Christ are a mess, are marked by sin and death and wrath. But thanks be to God that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that by your grace and mercy and out of your great love, you sent Jesus to make us alive. And Lord, I pray if there's one here today who needs to be made alive in Jesus Christ, that today would be a day of salvation. They would turn to you in faith, turn from their sins, and find in you life and salvation. And Lord, I know there are many of us in this room who already know you, are already part of of your family, who are Christian and saved. But God, we've forgotten that in that act of salvation, you have crafted us as your unique masterpiece, made for the purpose for which you created us for. And Lord, I pray today that, that we'll be reminded of those great truths that in Christ you have chosen us and that you have placed us in this period of time because it best suits our ability to be useful to you and that you've given us everything we could possibly need to fulfill your purpose. And that no matter what happens, because we are your children, you can work it for your glory. Lord, help us to live out those truths this week. Help us to be people who do those good works, not because they save us, but because you created us to do them. And they point people to the one who did that saving work in our life. Lord, we give you now these moments of our invitation. May you have your way in our hearts and lives, and we pray in Jesus' name.